from KPMG, this is Global Perspectives with Jillian Tech. Hello and welcome to Global Perspectives, the podcast series from KPMG focused on the big international issues, which is inspiring leaders who want to shape a more sustainable world where CEOs and their companies can flourish. And on this month's episode, I'm talking to Doug Holmes, who is Professor of Anthropology at Binghamton University in New York State, and who spent more than four decades as an anthropologist studying initially um, northern Italian peasant farming communities, very classic cultural anthropology field of um, study. Um, he looked at their ethnic identities, but then went on to study what the Bank of England, the ECB, the Ricks Bank, the New Zealand central banks were doing in terms of monetary policy and how economics really works or doesn't. But these days have been looking a lot at the question of ESG and sustainability and how companies are actually incorporating it into their everyday practice and what that means for how their workers, particularly their millennials, imagine what a company is today. So welcome, Doug. It's great to have you, a chance to chat to you. Now, you've been working for the last um, few years to study what's happening inside some of the world's biggest um, sovereign wealth funds and endowments and how they're managing sustainability. I know that one of the grants you've, you've been working on has been looking at the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, but there are others you're looking at too. Tell us what's changed in terms of how companies and employees think about sustainability these days. I'm, look, I'm in the midst of this project, and this is I'm very much committed to this work with Newt Meyer in Oslo, who has really been spearheading the field work. Uh, so I've been doing sort of the work over his shoulder, more or less, and learning about uh, what's going on, in part from participating in the conversations, but also in part from the conversations with Knut. What's happening now is, first of all, the, the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund is actually managed from within central bank. So there is a clear link between the operation of central banks and the work of sovereign wealth funds. I think the sovereign wealth funds beginning probably in the mid-2000s begin to recognize that there are these real alternatives that can threaten their portfolios. These enormous portfolios of wealth. And these are not the classic portfolio risks that we think about in terms of portfolio uh, construction and the like. But these were exogenous risks, risks that are, emanate obviously from climate change, but also from ethical and moral questions like child labor, other kinds of things like the, the state and the conditions of oceans, and that these broader, wider concerns have been brought into the operation of the funds and their decisions about how they construct their indexes for investing and what uh, firms they choose to uh, avoid investing in. And obviously, oil and gas was a big concern from the standpoint of the Norwegians and their struggles thinking through how or if they should invest in these companies became very important. Uh, but that opened up a whole range of other thinking about these questions. Right. So basically, so you went in and talked to these different investment pools that are owning gazillions of dollars, trying to work out how they should invest and realizing, as you say, there are these exogenous issues they need to contend with, like climate change. 
But one of the themes that emerges from a lot of your research which is fascinating is that as you get these new buzz phrases coming into public consciousness like ESG or sustainability, they're not just handed to corporate employees, are they? You actually have employees themselves driving this process exactly. too. Tell exactly. us a bit about what you saw on this front. Well, the most interesting thing from the standpoint, and this is sort of our big secret about the studying of the Norwegian fund, of the oil fund, is that the fund managers, the, actually the portfolio managers, extend what they call expectation documents, and they engage in corporate uh, dialogues where they set their expectations about how, how companies should manage their affairs. But they call upon the, the companies themselves to come up with solutions to these challenges. So they're really trying to draw on the creative potential of the company to address what are ESG uh, concerns. And that has been the most interesting. And in some sense, what's striking is as you know, we, we kind of have the sense that companies are uniformly resistant to regulation. Uh, they don't want new regulation for, for whatever purposes. This is a different story. It seems that the companies welcome these these kinds of conversations, these 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 moments to rethink what their operations are about. And there is a deep recognition that ESG is not just simply an external set of questions, but what's at stake is the sustainability of the company itself. Can this company sustain its profitability into the future? Uh, and that's what becomes sort of exciting and compelling from their point of view. In a moment, we'll return to the second part of our interview with Douglas Holmes. But first, we're joined by the global head of KPMG Impact, Richard Threlfall. Richard, we've been hearing from Douglas Holmes on today's podcast. One striking point he made was that companies are increasingly realizing that ESG isn't just a set of external questions, but is actually really the sustainability of the business itself. Now, from your perspective as KPMG's global head of impact, has there been a shift that you're seeing in the C-suite attitudes towards ESG like that? So thanks, Gillian. So I, I, I loved listening to Douglas talking about this. And I have to say, I, I very much agree with where he's coming from. And it is entirely reflected in what we're seeing as, a, as an organisation in, in KPMG and in our interactions with clients. Let me try and frame it with a bit of bit bit of sort of timeline, if you like, because I distinctly remember, you know, it was the end of March 2020, wasn't it? So the world was suddenly being locked down. And my background is in, in largely in civil engineering infrastructure projects, and obviously infrastructures had a big role to play and will continue to have a big role to play in particularly the decarbonisation part of ESG through wind farms and solar panels and so on. And so a huge part of my world was becoming focused on and absorbed around the imperative of decarbonisation. And I remember at the end of March 2020, having this real sinking feeling, which was the world is now going to focus on its survival. Companies are going to focus on their survival. Individuals are going to focus on their survival. And something which is seen to be as far away as climate change is going to go out the window. And the extraordinary thing was that within only six or eight weeks of, of feeling like that, I started to see the evidence was proving that wasn't the case. I remember having a chat with a gentleman who was uh, involved in a fundraise for a sustainability fund for one of the big infrastructure investors. He told me it had been four or five times oversubscribed. And I thought, well, that's extraordinary, isn't it? And then in September of that year, KPMG published its annual CEO survey. And we've been doing this for years and years and years. And 
and ESG and climate really hadn't featured prominently in in the conclusions of any of the previous surveys. And then suddenly, for the first time, we get this result that said 78% of the CEOs we were interviewing said that um, if they didn't get a grip on the implications of climate for their business, they didn't think they'd be in a job in five years' time. And and then the things just accelerated and accelerated from, from, from that point onwards. And indeed, by the time we come to the September 21 issue of the CEO Outlook, we've got another extraordinary stat, which is 30% of, of the CEOs are saying that they need to, to invest about 10% of their company's revenues in climate change and, and, and ESG. So I'm completely where Douglas is, and, and we're seeing it in terms of the huge amount of demand that we're now getting from our clients all over the world for help in terms of what they need to do in their decarbonisation journey. Well, that's really fascinating, Richard. And I have to be honest and admit that in many ways it reflects my own experience in that, you know, I created at the Financial Times an ESG platform in 2019. And when COVID hit, I thought it was going to dramatically knock it off its tracks because people wouldn't have the time or luxury to focus on it. And I was totally wrong as well. But that also comes back to another point that Douglas raised in his conversation with me, which is the degree to which CEOs do not buy into it and the degree to which their company staff buy into it. Mm. Now, do you think that the kind of enthusiasm we're seeing from CEOs is reflected across the company? And how does that play into the degree to which boardrooms are being restructured or changing their focus too? I wonder whether the weak link is the middle of organisations. And I say that in the sense that I think that we are seeing huge amounts of commitment at the level of the C-suite reflected in the sorts of uh, stats I've just given you. We also can all see that there is this tremendous groundswell of pressure coming from younger employees in organisations. And actually, again, one of my reflections is, you know, what, what was it that caused the real anger and energy around climate change to, to jump from the street? And the younger generation to the boardroom and uh, maybe that's a conversation for a longer or different podcast but i suspect it's something to do literally with the conversation over the family dining table between young people and 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 their parents who happen to be in those positions of power so i could see both those parts of of organizations really embracing what needs to be done but when i say i think that the, the weakness is in the middle there was a piece from one of the analyst uh, organizations that i saw only yesterday which was saying that they thought that organisations were really struggling to operationalise and carry down the commitments that are being made in the boardroom into the way the organisation is operating. And one of the little pieces of evidence for this was really fascinating was that when they had been surveying chief execs and, and C-suite around the expectation that the company would be implementing measures around decarbonisation, they were getting a particularly high number and when they were asking middle management, the percentage was much less. They didn't think, and I don't think, this is because there's a greenwashing going on that company chief execs are saying things they don't believe in. I think it's genuinely because the way in which organisations are structured, the governance of organisations, all the fundamental levers of how they work, is all a reflection of shareholder capitalism and hasn't yet adapted to this world of stakeholder capitalism. And there's just so many things you need to change before you can actually start to operationalise a determination, for example, to decarbonise decarbonize the whole of your business and the whole of your supply chain with it. Well, that's fascinating. Now, 
I mean, a lot of people might say, well, actually, the reluctance of middle management is not that surprising, given that we live in such uncertain political times. And if you just look at the issue of decarbonisation, you know, the war in Ukraine, the wider spiral up in energy costs that are hurting a lot of people could be one reason for people to say, well, actually, can we really afford ESG? Is it the right time to even think about these things or not? I'm not on that page at all in the sense that it feels to me like, if anything, that the pressure that we are seeing through the global energy markets because of the uh, because of the invasion of, of Ukraine, if anything, points the way to the importance of making the transition faster. It's already the case, according to the International Energy Association, that the cost of renewable energy is cheaper in about two, you know, jurisdictions covering about two thirds of the world's populations. And obviously, the more the volume continues to go up and the more the prices continue to go down, as we've seen, you know, dramatically over the last 10 years, then in the long run, we end up in a, in a sort of virtuous outcome where we have better energy security because this is more decentralised energy, but we also have lower cost energy at the end of the day. So you don't have this, this dilemma. Now, I fully accept that in the short term, of course, that, that price pressure is being felt. But the price pressure is being felt precisely because it's the cost of the carbon emitting <laughs> energies that are going up. And so if anything, it just says we need to invest much, much faster and much more quicker in renewables in order to get to a position which safeguards our populations. Well, that's certainly something which I have a lot of sympathy with, but it's going to be interesting to see how it unfolds over the next year. But anyway, Richard, thanks for joining us on Global Perspectives. Um, really interesting points. And now we're going to go back to the second part of the interview with Douglas Holmes. Anyone who's a sort of middle-aged manager, a bit like myself, knows that their younger employees, many of their employees, have different expectations. And what is emerging from a lot of your research is that ESG isn't something that's done to companies. It's not something the corporate board says, yes, I'm going to have an ESG strategy and impose it on the company. It's really been driven by bottom-up shifts in expectations. In your case, you're seeing from the actual portfolio managers, the people who are actually providing funding to other companies, but it's really almost a bottom-up movement, not a top-down set of you know box-sticking exercises. Is that correct? Well, it, it goes even further because the, as I mentioned that the fund has these expectation documents, but these expectation documents are drawn from complex conversations with all kinds of different stakeholders, with people in NGOs, with UN representatives, from EU representatives who are thinking through these questions with great, with great sophistication and great depth. So what they're bringing to these conversations, what they're bringing to these corporate dialogues are really a set of expectations that are rising globally. Uh, and for a whole range of different activists from officials, again, like people working on UN, UN climate issues. So they're bringing something that's emerging, as you say, on a global level. And in a sense, it is about something, you know, that you've um, meant, that is a kind of anthro vision that's emerging <laughs> about how we understand our world in a different kind of way and our place in it, our legacies, our responsibilities, something deep and profound is shifting that goes well beyond ESG, uh, but has become part of that conversation and, uh, and, is, and is really, I think, well, key to whether or not we can address these, these questions in a mean, meaningful way. Well, you see, one again, the reason I'm stressing is because, you know, anyone who's been in business school has been given this idea that a company is a fixed thing. 
a company right. is regarded as an entity or a concept which is as unchanging and universal as gravity. And it, people have the idea, they've been to business school and they're sitting in a C-suite, that they're sitting there on top of a company, running it, giving out orders, setting strategy, telling its employees what to do. And what you're basically arguing is actually a company is a living, breathing concept that changes over time. And just as people through their lived experience in the economy, remake economics and the economy and monetary policy every day, bottom up. So too, the employees every day remake their company through their lived experience of it and reimagine it. And one way to make sense of what's happening with ESG is that, you know, employees are remaking their vision of the company every day. Exactly, exactly. And by the way, we mentioned it before, but, you know, this is the book that I I referred to Peter Drucker's concept of the corporation, which dates from 1946. And he is the person who really founded the basic curriculum for MBA programs in the United States and became one of the first kind of business gurus uh, in the latter lat, uh, third quarter of the 20th century. But he is insisting that the corporation is a social entity with a public purpose, and those purposes can change. It's interesting because he writes his book about General Motors. The book is published in 46. He does field work in General Motors, spends time with uh, Alfred Sloan, but he is shocked. What he finds most shocking is the transition of General Motors from producing 4,000 auto parts and automobiles to almost within months producing 400 pieces of military hardware to fight the war. And this transformation is dazzling to him. And he believed that it was driven by decentralization and a real understanding of how managers develop, how they work, how they do their work, how they think about their, their relationship to others and how they motivate workers. And that is inherently not something that's simply a matter of uh, wage incentives or uh, promotion incentives, but something was a deep sort of ethos in General Motors that he admired. It's interesting, he makes a whole series of recommendations that GM <laughs> refused to embrace, but almost all of his recommendations were embraced by Toyota, <laughs> which is kind of ironic. Anyway, it's an interesting story and it's a kind of outdated book in many respects, but it is just what you said. It is a concept of a corporation that is dynamic and that only by understanding that and recognizing that can you really fully analyze what corporations are up to and where you know the, our economic futures lie. So do you think that, you know, given that so much of the ESG sustainability movement is driven sort of bottom up and it's remade each day by, you know, people inside companies or in portfolio managers going to companies and saying, you know, tell us how you're going to be sustainable. Do you think this is kind of a permanent shift or is it just a fashion of the moment? Well, I think there is there is fashion and hype involved with it. There's no doubt about that. And I think we've gone through I perhaps the the war in Ukraine has punctuated something about the development of ESG and shown that there are other imperatives that are pressing on corporations that we have to take seriously. But I think there's no doubt that this is unstoppable. It will reconfigure itself. I think, as you pointed out in an article, the E and the S and the G may be disaggregated, and we may have to look at the complicated ways in which the ESG interact with each other. You know, we have we've gone through this first phase, which I would date to probably you know, only the last decade or so, and now um, I think 
we've gotten new ways of thinking about accountability, new ways of measuring things, new ways of talking about these matters. So I think we're in moving into a new phase of the, this this moment of uh, of really rethinking. This is one point that's I think quite important. The Norwegians are thinking about how to understand ownership in a different way, recognizing that ownership is not simply a prerogative for gleaning profit. Uh, ownership has a complicated set of obligations embedded in it and foregrounding those. So there are all kinds of interesting con conceptual, what we would call cultural work that's ongoing. And I think we'll find that ESG in the next decade retains some of what's been going on recently, but also introduces new dynamic possibilities. I think the most important one is the one I mentioned earlier, is that I think corporations are realizing that actually uh, struggling with these questions may well enhance the long-term profitability, indeed may be essential for the long-term profitability of the corporations. So I think that's what's exciting. Uh, and I think that's what excites young people. They see that, they know that, they know that this is, these questions have to be addressed. Thank you very much indeed, Professor. It's a pleasure talking to you.